following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, we're going to talk about false teachers again because Peter has been talking about false teachers incessantly in his second letter to the church. And I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. So this is 2 Peter 2, verse 17. These people I'm talking about are nothing but dried up springs, mist driven by fierce winds. The deepest darkness has been set aside for them. They speak in loud voices, empty and arrogant. They exploit the desires of the flesh. They take advantage of sensual natures to entangle people who have just escaped from those who live by deception. They claim to offer them freedom, but they themselves are enslaved by corruption because whatever a person gives into soon becomes his master. Those who have been pulled out of the cesspool of worldly desires through the knowledge, and this word is epigenosis. I don't know if you remember early in our series on Second Peter, it was the first or second week we talked about this particular word. This was kind of the fullness of this experiential knowledge of being part of the kingdom of God and experience the work of Jesus in their life. So those who have been pulled out of the cesspool of worldly desires through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the anointed one, yet have found themselves mired in it again are worse off than they were before. They would have been better off never knowing the way of righteousness than to have known it and then abandoned the sacred commandment they had previously received and dived back into the muck. In their cases, the words from Proverbs hold true. The dog goes back to his vomit. And as the Greeks say, the sow is washed to wallow in the mud. This is another one of those sections where I could go through word by word and image by image and just spend a whole lot of time helping you understand what the original audience heard. I want to do it slightly different this morning. I just want to read this section again with what I'm calling Anthony's Contextual Translation. So if you pick up notes, there's a bunch of notes at the bottom so you can see where I'm getting this information. But let's read through it again with a little broader context to help us understand how that first audience would have been connecting dots to things they had been taught so they knew what was going on. So once again, back to verse 17. These people I'm talking about are nothing but dried up springs. They're wells that look promising to the parched traveler, but they contain only sand. They're like rain clouds driven away by fierce winds from the lands that desperately need water. They look like they're bringing life, but they're not. The deepest darkness, perhaps the outer darkness of Matthew 8, has been set aside for them. They speak in loud voices, empty and arrogant. They exploit the desires of the flesh, and they take advantage of sensual natures to entangle people who have just escaped from those who live by deception. They claim to offer them freedom from being controlled by their passions. They think they are their own masters, but they're actually slaves who have lost the battle with their passions, not want it. They've been conquered by the corruption and the sin they believe they are controlling. In their indulgence, they are being controlled. And as you know, whatever a person gives into soon becomes his master. The world is a cesspool of worldly desires. It's like a dead body or stagnant lake spreading sickness that infects and destroys us. Fortunately, through the transformative knowledge, that's the epigenosis of our Lord and Savior Jesus, that enables us to begin participating in the divine nature, many have been pulled away from that rotting corpse of moral death in the world. They've been pulled out of that putrid water of sin and corruption. Unfortunately, 
they go back and find themselves entangled in it again, like rabbits impaled on thorns, or sheep whose wool is so intertwined in thorns that they can't move. When that happens, they're worse off than they were before. They would have been better off never knowing the way of righteousness than to have known it and then abandoned the life-giving moral law they had previously received and dived back into the muck. Ignorance of God is bad, but apostasy is worse. In their case, the words from Proverbs hold true. The dog goes back to his own vomit, or as the Greeks say, the sow is washed to wallow in the mud. Remember the teaching of the rabbis. Orpha, the bestial soul, is returned to her mire, but Ruth persevered in spirit. So a couple things to note. First of all, Peter wasn't calling people pigs and dogs. He wasn't trying to be insulting. He's just using an image. And if you're worried about the science of the image, I mean, pigs actually prefer water to mud, and dogs go back to the vomit because it's actually nutritious, which is gross but true. They, the author wasn't trying to make a point about that. They're simply taking images of unclean things in Jewish culture that are going even further into unclean circumstances. So the whole point was to say, there's unclean people. Without Christ, people are in that state. And they're in the muck, they're surrounded by the vomit of their lives, and then they're pulled out, and they're cleaned up, thanks to the work of Jesus in their life. And then they get to know God. And once again, back to the beginning of Second Peter, they get to experience the reality of Christ at work in their life, and then they go back to their life of sin. And the question that really stuck with me this week was, why? Because we could do a whole sermon about, what does this mean about our salvation and different things like that? Um, we could talk about that in Message Plus if we want to, but the question that stuck with me is, why? Why would they go back? If life is characterized by wallowing in mud, or it's characterized by living in such a way that you're just vomiting up the sickness of your life and you're surrounded by it, why on earth would the people in this early church go back? And my thoughts are probably for the same reasons we do. So I'm going to give you three reasons I think we go back. These are reasons that come from the overall biblical context and some observations about life. I can't give you a specific verse necessarily for each one, but I think we see certain scenarios play out in the Bible and in the world. So I'm going to tell you, the first one's going to be a rebuke. So I'm going to come down pretty hard on this first one because I think it's an important one in our culture. The second one is just a warning or a caution about how we live our own lives. And the third one's going to be an encouragement because I, I think there's something to take away from this that I hope really compels you to move closer to Christ. All right, three reasons. Here's the first reason that I think we go back to our mud and our vomit is that God doesn't seem good to us. A number of years ago, um, I was very involved in kind of apologetics and the intellectual defense of the faith, which I think is very important. But I'm starting to think the Christian apologetic that makes the most difference in our culture is no longer an intellectual one, it's a relational one, and it's an experiential one. Because here's what's happening. I'm hearing more and more stories of people who are coming into the church, and I don't mean our church, it could be, I'm just saying the church. People are coming into the church, and what they're discovering is that God's people live like rebels rather than servants. And they're discovering that within the church, 
They are having mud and vomit put onto them, and they thought it was the place where they were coming to find healing, but it's the place where in some ways those things are piling up. And if being part of God's community isn't a good experience, I think it might suggest that maybe the king of this kingdom might not be as good as people promised. So we talked last week about how we're image bearers, and I liked how, I think it was Hans kind of triggered some discussion last week in Message Plus about this idea of icons. We're icons of God. So if you think of your computer screen or your phone screen, you'll tap on this small little image, and that small little image will take you somewhere. That image is not the thing, but if you touch it, you should go to that thing. I wonder if that's a helpful way to think of us as icons, that when people come in contact with us, when they push us, ideally we take them to God. We take them to the one whose image we bear, or we take them to the one who has given us this temple. But just like with icons on our computer, you know, if you click Word, you don't want to go to Spider Solitaire. Even worse, well, you might. Even worse, uh, you might go to a virus because you had confidence that this icon would take you somewhere, but it doesn't. And in fact, the place it takes you leaves you worse off than you were before. And I, I just wonder what happens when someone's drawn to Jesus in the church and they click on us and they're taken somewhere other than to God. And when that happens, the church becomes a source of vomit and mud. I read a story this last week of yet another Christian celebrity who's in the news who has been, um, how do I say this, not removed from ministry because they weren't in official ministry, but they had to step down amidst a lot of bad press for the abuse and a, perhaps the abuse of multiple women. And two of those women walked away from the faith. And I was talking with some friends about it this week, and one of my friends said, you know, of all the things that challenge my faith the most, there's nothing that makes me question it like Christians. And I was reading some stuff this week, and I, I thought, you know, we could say all we want that people should just keep their eyes focused on Jesus in those situations, and that's true. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, not anybody else around us. So that's true. We can also say it's not fair for people to judge the character of God by the character of his people. That's also true. Those aren't false statements. But I think if we keep landing on those things, we're missing the point. At least the point that I think is crucial for us to grasp in this moment. And that is that the Bible is clear that what's now being called deconversions because there's so many happening in our culture, they happen a lot because God's people don't live as God's people should. And the Bible has warned us about this over and over. Here's Peter. He says there's bad icons in the church. And in this section specifically, it's teachers and leaders who not only teach false things, but they live horrible lives. If you go back and read that whole chapter, we covered it a couple weeks ago, they were using people, they were abusing, they were exploiting um, financially, they were exploiting sexually. These were just a toxic presence in the church. And Peter is clear, when that is unaddressed and that stays there, it pushes people back out of the church. And we can say all we want, that they ought to fix their eyes on Jesus, but Peter himself warns us that if this is left unaddressed in the church, this will happen. 
Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2 of teaching that spreads like cancer and destroys the faith of people. Acts 20 warns us of savage wolves among the church who will draw disciples away from Jesus. And Jesus himself told the Pharisees, listen, you're making disciples of hell, which is a phrase we don't often hear in American pulpits today. But this is the reality. There is a thing called deconversion, that people come to Christ and they come into the church and then they leave. And one of the key reasons, at least in our time, is that their experience with the people of God is pushing them away because the people of God do not seem lovely and it makes it very hard to see their God look lovely as well. And so we could say they're illogical. We could say it's unfair. We could say people are immature. One or all three may well be true, but if that's where we stay, we're missing the point. The Bible warns us that the presence of God's people has significant influence in how people perceive God, especially in the church. I think I've lost track the last several years of how many stories I've heard, whether this is talking with people that I know or whether it's just staying caught up with people online that they've, they've walked away from church because of the people of God, not because an argument convinced them, not because the problem of pain dissuaded them, but because their experience in the community of the people of God um, was more than just, um, was worse than just mediocre, it was damaging. And it felt like as they moved into the church, they were given more vomit and more mud in their life than they'd had before. And this happens a couple ways, I think. One is when they see deep and abiding hypocrisy. And by that, I don't mean a standard deviation of imperfection. I don't have a better word than that. None of us are perfect on this side of heaven, right? Okay. Part of what we do in our life together is we all constantly extend grace. I'm just going to call that a standard deviation of imperfection. But I'm talking about a hypocrisy where there's blatant and purposeful embrace of a double standard. Or when there's blatant and unaddressed sin. Once again, not the standard deviation of imperfection. I'm talking about, it's the sin of the rebellious, not the sin of the weak. And it remains unaddressed. It's the unfiltered or unqualified support of morally troubling celebrities or politicians or political parties or social issues, and it's really confusing in light of the Bible or in light of previous stances on those issues. Or there's a lot of screaming about the sliver in someone's eye when everybody else can see the moat in the eye of the screamer. Let me give an example. Zondervan, who is a publisher of a lot of Christian books, they noted this in an article recently. Several years ago, a poll was taken that showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those of people claiming not to be Christians when it comes to the following list. Gambling, visiting pornographic websites, taking something that doesn't belong to them, saying mean things behind someone's back, consulting a medium or a psychic, having a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for something they did, and consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, the only activity that was less common for Christians was recycling. Not included in this list, by the way, are things like abortion statistics, where 70% of abortions in America are done by people who claim to be Christian, 18% by evangelicals. 
And then we wonder why, when we make public stances on issues, people don't take us seriously. So I was reading about deconversions again this week, and once again, they're mostly critical um, of the experience of being in the church. So here's the deal. I can't control or fix the situation if someone really is illogical or immature or unfair. I can't control that in other people. What do I have control over? Myself. I have control over myself, as do all of you. And as part of the church, we have influence, and, and I'll use the word control for what the church experience is like. That's the thing that was, is within my hands. So where does judgment begin, according to the Bible, in the house of God? Like, we're the temples, right? The temple's dirty, and once again, I don't just mean normally dusty, but when the temple has trash piling up in the corners... And the people come visit the temple and they see what's going on, there's a lot of questions. That's why I think our cutting-edge apologetic in the United States right now isn't philosophy. I think it's integrity. These deconversions often, if not usually, begin with relational problems and experiential problems. And God has chosen to embody himself in the world through us. I'm still pretty amazed by that. God knows that image bearers will influence what people think of the image. This isn't a surprise to God. This is the message in the Bible over and over. We're image bearers. We're temples. What we do as representatives is very, very important. So the solution, let's go back to earlier in Peter, I think as we become those doulas, those servants, which Peter says the beautiful thing is being a servant to God, he pulls you into his family and that makes you his child, and it's in this process of surrender, full surrender, that's transformative, and we become part of the family of God, and in this process, we look more and more like Jesus. And the more people click on these icons that we are, the more they get a clear view of who Jesus is. It's not by our works, mind you. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us, but I, I've talked about this before. We partner we can't be lazy in the process. Surrender is a serious and a difficult thing, but it's life-changing. All right, so that was, the, that was the rebuke part. If you feel like that's unfair, I got to think of how to phrase this. Nah, that's the rebuke part. I'm just going to let it there. Yeah, we will. All right, now I want to give the warning or the caution just about our own lives because I think people will go back because they think that the vomit and the mud might not actually be as bad as they remember, which I think is one of the greatest deceptions of sin. So temptation only works when it's effective, right? We're often not drawn to something huge that we've never done before. It's usually bit by bit, really effective temptation, and I don't mean to give tips to Satan here, but really effective temptation begins by convincing us that little compromises are okay. And when that feels good, or that little compromise gets us something we want, why not keep going? So, do you want to be a pickpocket or embezzler or a bank robber? No, I do not. But what about when that cashier gives me extra change? Do I give it back? 
Or do I take a little step? What about when I can file my taxes in a way that is unjust? All right, do I do that or do I go ahead and do the thing that is required of me? Um, would you be likely to walk up and call somebody a blankety blank, 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 fill in whatever word you want there? This is being recorded and there's children in the room. We probably wouldn't. But would we call someone a libtard or an orange Cheeto? Well, maybe, right? Because that's just funny and people give me likes. But that's just a step in the direction that you're now headed. Do we support human trafficking and prostitution? Of course not. Well, what about porn? Well, no one's being hurt. Not this site. I'm sure this is fine. But Peter's clear. Whenever a person gives into something, it soon becomes their master. Or I would put it this way. When we put one foot in front of the other, it takes us the direction our feet are pointing. Sheila and I were watching a show this week, and there was a little bit of the drama where this girl was trying to decide if this guy liked her. And the other, this other guy friend of hers says, listen, when you talk to him, look where his feet are pointing. His feet will point toward the thing he cares about. So she goes to a store. She sees a couple arguing, and the husband's feet are pointing away from his wife. And she sees all the examples, and this guy she likes turns and talks to her, and she looks down, and his feet are pointing right at her. And it just struck me, that, that's probably not a bad analogy. Uh, where are our feet pointing? What direction are we stepping? Because this isn't, I don't feel amazed that I thought of this on my own because this is pretty basic. Like, whatever you take a step toward, that's the thing you go toward. <laughs> you can quote me on that. Yeah, right? It's pretty revelational. I mean, we know this, right? We know this. And it's easy for us to implement this when we're actually taking physical steps. But what about when we take moral steps? It's easy to take that first step and think it wasn't that far, but it's a direction. No matter how far that step is. Sometimes I think we, we buy the lie and we go back just because we want it to be true. We want the thing we once tried to give us what we were looking for, and we start to assume, maybe I just didn't do it right. Maybe I didn't give myself to it enough. Maybe if I learn a certain way to do it better, I'll get this thing I'm looking for. So we want indulging in our lust to be okay. We want the porn and the hookups to bring us a good life. It looks so good on TV. It looks so glossy in a magazine. So we think, yeah, let it be true. Why? Because real-world relationships are messy. Now I have to interact with another human being where I'm practicing agape love, and we don't always like each other, but we're trying to love each other, and they've got all their quirks, and relationships are really hard. What if I can find a way to avoid all that messy relational stuff? Then I can avoid dying to self. I can avoid serving others. I might even be able to avoid the hard work of treating people like image bearers. So we want that to be okay. We want to believe that I could go there and do it right and it will be okay. I must have done it wrong before. But surely that was just my fault for not knowing how to do it right. When the reality is it's mud and vomit. There's no way you're going to do it. That's going to give you what you were hoping for. Maybe we think, I really want the love of money to not be the root of all kinds of evil. 
I want to be able to think of my money as mine, even though I'm in a kingdom and God, it's God's money, but I want to be able to think of it as mine. I want to be able to buy what I want to buy and live where I want to live and go where I want to go. I don't want to have to worry about the needs in my church or in my community. Life would be so much easier. I could get the vacation and the car and the house and the hobby and then maybe I'll be happy. I mean, it didn't work before, but I think we start to think maybe I just didn't do it right. should have invested my money better. If I'd have had how much more? One dollar more. I'd have been okay. Maybe I'll try that again. What about bitterness and unforgiveness? Sometimes that feels really good, doesn't it? Yeah, just to kind of nurse a grudge. They deserve my anger. And we can excuse it, by the way, as kind of a righteous sense of justice. It's not gossip when I tell other people about it. I mean, other people should know so they don't get hurt. I'm actually protecting people around me when I tell them about how terrible this person was. And it just feels kind of good to not let that go. But it ate me up from the inside out. And it ruined a lot of relationships. Maybe I didn't do it right. We start to look back at the mud and vomit and start to wonder, could I have done that better? Could I have actually made that work? Because this call to forgiveness and repentance and once again agape love is really hard. We buy the lie sometimes. It lets us avoid ourselves, I think. So the first... Uh, was a rebuke. The second was an encouragement not, not to be dishonest about what mud and vomit look like. But the third reason I think people go back, and this is where I want to be encouraging this morning, is I think people believe they deserve a life of vomit and mud. And of all the ones I've listed, I think this one breaks my heart the most. I think it breaks God's heart too. We just assume that we're too broken that the mud is the place we ought to live, that wallowing is our home, that vomit, yep, that's probably the best thing I've got coming out of me. The idea there's a life where shame is lifted, where addictions are healed, where brokenness is mended, where bitterness turns to forgiveness, where our history doesn't dictate our destiny or our worth, it, it just seems too good to be true. There's no way Jesus wants me and his family. I mean, look at me. I don't have anything to add to the church. I was born in sin. It feels like home. My native language is foul and it's cruel. I can't see how this shrine to sin can ever be a temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't like myself. How could God possibly like me? So I think we go back. Not because we didn't find what Christ offered compelling, but because we just assume, I don't think I'm worth it. I think I'm too far gone. There's no way Jesus will take me like this. But what did we talk about last week? Jesus said, even if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So even if you think you're the least of these, you have to know that Jesus took the wages of your sin. He promises to bring you in when you surrender your life to him and clean off that vomit and that mud and make something new of your life. I just want to say this morning, if one of your frustrations 
with following Christ or being part of church is that you think there's no possible way you'll ever be good enough for Jesus or you'll ever be clean enough for this church. May I just assure you that is not true. Jesus brings beauty from ashes. He takes the worst of us and promises a new life. And this, by the way, is where we get the opportunity now as a church to address that first issue. What does it look like if as people are part of this church and the broader church also, but this church, if people come into this community and what they experience is the lavish love of God's people that reflects the lavish love of God, that reflects they can bring in a vomit and mud-covered life and nobody pushes them away. In fact, the grosser it is, the closer they hold them. And then they hear the sharing of stories and they hear testimonies and they hear how Jesus has been faithful and what once felt like a place of despair in their life becomes a place of hope because now they know what Jesus can do and it's more than words, though these words are important, it's more than the words they've seen that promise come to life in the lives of others. And then, by the way, I think we address all three of the things I brought up this morning if we do that as a church. How is that not a compelling community of Christ followers? And when you begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, when you begin to see the beauty of purity and cleanliness and obedience and the life that comes with that, that makes that other life less and less compelling. And then finally, just to be surrounded by people whose lives are testimony to the saving grace of Jesus. Uh, that helps us get past that sense of, I don't think I'm worth it. I don't think God cares. I don't think God's people will love me. We're, we're his temple. We're his image. We're his hands and feet. We get the privilege and the responsibility of being that kind of presence for people. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.